HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Nam Wa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. On this COVID-19 pandemic journey through culinary history, Yes, it is April 2nd, 2020, and as you all know, we are in the midst of our coronavirus pandemic, and that coronavirus pandemic announcement caused widespread panic buying. A lot of others considered it just stocking up to stay at home. At any rate, it led to a lot of buying and hoarding by some. But You know, the fear of famine and panic buying have a long history in the human condition during times of crisis. Just think of the last time a big snowstorm or hurricane or tornado was predicted. And what happens? People historically rush to the supermarket and buy duplicates or triplicate supplies of bread and milk and, you know, all the other staples, which often include uh, ice cream and pancake mix. (laughs) Go figure. But those would be pandemic cravings. At any rate, it's anxiety. And anxiety triggers hunger. And then a fear of not having enough to eat, real or not. So pandemic buying and hoarding, and suddenly the shelves are empty. And a lot of people wonder, well, the supermarket shelves are empty. Is the supply chain broken? Have we run out of food? Well, we've been assured that there is plenty of food in the supply chain, for now. The reason you're seeing the empty shelves at the supermarket is because of how much frenzied buying there's been. And with that huge spike in demand, retailers and suppliers and and the whole supply chain really have a difficult time refilling the delivery trucks and restocking. So it's really, that's what's causing the empty shelves. 
In an interview for a recent Wall Street Journal article, Roland Ford, a former Walmart executive, said that food sellers he spoke to in mid-March told him they sold three months of supplies in 10 days. Nobody keeps three months of worth of anything around anymore, he said. Well, that same Wall Street Journal article gave some historical background to explain it. In the past, oh, I'd say two decades, they said, producers and, and large grocery chains, chains such as Kroger's have gone from keeping several months of inventory on hand to holding only four to six weeks supply. The article states that after a brief recession in the early 1990s, the industry came under pressure from investors to, of course, improve profit margins. Companies settled on a strategy called just-in-time supply, and that aimed to produce, ship, and stock as few goods as possible to meet the demand. By decreasing the capacity of their distribution centers, retailers saved on rent. You know, those warehouses cost a lot of money to keep up. So they saved on rent and labor and utilities, and distributors saved on fuel and wages. Manufacturers cut down on capital that was locked up in unsold inventory. So in this recent months period, the grocers just weren't prepared for the pandemic. Many food suppliers are now ramping up production, sometimes sending incomplete orders to give retailers at least some goods to sell. And if you've, I don't know, I have not been to the grocery store being in that age group that uh, is told to stay at home, but I have heard that people are going to the grocery stores and now finding that certain things are back on the shelves, of course. Um, But they're also stocking items that sell rapidly rather than that wide variety of products. And as factories ramp up production, they say that they need the ingredient suppliers to do the same thing. So it's kind of this domino effect. Those companies, too, got used to keeping less inventory around. Some examples of of what was affected is retail sales of paper towels, black beans, and canned tuna rose almost, well, more, not roughly, or almost, 150% in the week that ended March 14th versus the previous year, according to Nielsen's market research team. And according to a Wall Street Journal survey of U.S. grocery stores from March 15th to March 17th, the most common items out of supply were dried pasta, rice, bread, eggs, canned beans, frozen foods, dried beans, bottled water, and, and don't forget, toilet paper. Concurrent with these articles, a friend and a colleague, James Malin from New York University, went shopping with his wife, and he noticed that there was no prepared tomato sauce, although at that time there were still cans of tomatoes on the shelves. He posted his findings and curiosity on this to in the listserv of the Association for the Study of Food and Society. He wondered if others on the listserv, listserv noticed specific items missing from the grocery shelves. And with that, he opened a floodgate of responses from around the country. People reported on their findings all over, and a typical pattern 
seemed to arise. No rice, no pasta, no flour, no beans. And on my last trip, which would have been about, uh, I don't know, two weeks ago to the large supermarket to prepare for our stay at home, I too noticed the usual empty shelves. But what interested me the most was the lack of dried beans. And I had noticed that on all these other lists of surveys of missing items, those ubiquitous bags of beans that often go, or seemingly go, unsold for weeks and just sit on the shelves were now nowhere to be found, nor were even the canned varieties. Hmm. Surprisingly wise choices in the pandemic shopping habits. I have to say my faith in American cooks was restored, even if my pantry was not. But I was curious. Beans are possibly the oldest cultivated crop in the world and have been around since prehistoric times. And they're one of the most important food sources in history. So I decided to invite as my guest today, the author of the soon to be released book, Beans, A Global History, so that we can find out a bit more about this important food source. Natalie Rachel Morris is a food systems instructor, a food and culture scholar, and a trained culinarian. She's the founder of the award-winning farm and food directory, Good Food Finder, and works at Arizona State University. She lives in Phoenix and joins us today by computer in our remote recording. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, welcome. It's nice to sort of be in person. <laughs> Yes. Well, I don't know if anyone notices or hears the difference, but our recording is a bit different because, yes, we are recording remotely via <laughs> the internet. And, you know, at least we can be in a conversation, have a conversation, and then people around the country or around the world can hear about it and uh, and then have their own thoughts on what's going on. But this book on beans is... Uh, it interested me, as I say, because I was, you know, I was really, quite frankly, surprised that the dried beans were the first to disappear. I thought, whoa, has Instapot really taken over the country and everyone's cooking beans quickly? I mean, people usually shied away from dried beans because they were, you know, a longer process to soak them and then cook them. And um, But as I say, I, I, they at least, I guess, are educated and realize it's a good source of, of food. And um, has been for a long time. What? So I want you to tell us all how long have these beans been around, and and or cultivated. I guess they had to be cultivated for us to know that they'd been around. And where did they originate? Sure. And you know, I'll I'll start off by saying I'm I'm really uh, glad that they've also been flying off the shelves, and, and my faith in in. Uh, people cooking and that kind of thing is renewed as well. I, I think that's so great. Um, I, uh, I start off the book by talking a little bit about um, going um, pretty far back in time and, and uh, talking about our predecessors who had beans. Um, the earliest beans that we know of really were what we would think of as a green bean, um, just a crunchy, uh, sweet snack that, um, you know, 
was more of a, a vegetable and you know, beans are vegetables, but what we think of as a green bean, they would have had as a fresh pull off the vine snack. And yet in its earliest forms, it was um, probably pretty stringy and unpleasant to eat. Um, And yet at some point along that line, um, when man discovered fire and put that together into a cooking format, um, things changed. And uh, along with other foods, they were able to start uh, cooking. And when you when you cook um, any type of food, it becomes you know the structure of that food. The the it it becomes a different type of item. And so um, beans did too. And they were less stringy. They were now more um, something that they could more pleasantly chew and um that's kind of that was one of the first turn that was i would say the first turning point for um enjoying beans and um Mm. if you think about a bean it's just a pod and it has the beans inside but that's how they were first enjoying the beans um And they were still the sweet, uh, probably even more sweet than what we think of now with a with a with a green bean. But um, that's how they were first enjoying them. Well, in these um, early uh, prehistoric times, where people have found remnants of of beans or something, where do we know where? Well, whereabouts the the, the ice plates shifted, everything changed. So I guess it wouldn't sure. matter whereabouts they were. But um, then. Then farming came into being, um, and beans, you know, beans moved, I guess they moved around. But before we can talk about beans, we do have to mention legumes. Yeah. And all beans are legumes, as you say (laughs) in the book, and as is a, a common saying, all beans are legumes, but not all legumes are beans. Can you, uh, explain that to us, please? Sure. Um... So what I talk a little bit about in the book is the is the, the, is the sort of the botany of the bean and that's one of the chapters that we kind of get into the technical areas of uh um of some of that and um so when we talk about beans uh some of them are, are legumes and and uh um all of that what I'm referring to is that um the the larger family of beans, or, or I should, I mean, I'm going to, that's not right. The larger family of legumes is uh, encompassing all sorts of things. So, uh, for example, when you walk outside, you might see clover on the ground. That's actually a legume. Um, that is not a bean, though. Um, you wouldn't pick that up and take that inside and cook it like you would a bean. Um but it is considered a legume. Um, so that, for example, is something that you might um, not know is part of the legume family family and related to beans. Um, another one is vetch, um, which is something that is often used um, in agriculture or um, people living in rural areas might see vetch growing outside. Um, but those aren't something that I would say consumers on an everyday basis think of or maybe even know of are related to 
the beans that we see in our pantries. So, Natalie, um, after the original, you said the green beans were some of the earliest beans, but um, then when we get into the cultivation period, and tell me about when we're talking, um, what were some of the earliest beans that were noticed? So, um, during the uh, the Neolithic Neolithic Revolution, which was also during the which was also called the Agricultural Revolution, um, because it came after the Ice Age and it was a quite a warm time and pretty um, you know fertile and uh, great for growing. Um, agriculture came about and and people figured out they could grow. From that came the growth of the legumes and uh, some of the earliest that came from that, uh, what is believed is that favas were actually the first um, beans to arrive on the scene. And that was in the Fertile Crescent, um, along with uh, lentils and chickpeas. Um, those were the beans that um, uh, people started to um, find wild species of and then cultivate and farming organized uh, farming really became um, something that uh, humans decide uh, decidedly started to do um, as an activity and to survive hmm. well I loved how you quoted uh, Ken Albala in your book who is a frequent guest on this show and um, you included his quote. He said, "Without beans, it certainly it's certainly less likely that those early civilizations would have ever risen." And that, of course, is in reference to Mesopotamia. And there, as you mentioned, the Fertile Crescent. Correct? Yes. Yes. So, I'm really inspired by obviously his work, um, which was um, the precursor to mine. Um, he, I, I, I note him as the bean historian um, in my book, and he uh, says that quote, and I really take to it because I think that uh, one of the underlying points in my own book is that beans are not only, um, they're kind of a sleeper candidate, um, I think I even use that term in my book, because they not only help us nutritionally, um, as he is alluding to there, but they also help our soil um, in um, the world and the environment as well. And um, I think that that quote really reflects um, their dual purpose and how um, much strength they have. Right. Well, when you say that they um, they helped us in other ways, and certainly um, you're probably referring to livestock feed and and the their use as cover crops yes uh both mm. um mm -hmm. they uh yes our, our our livestock feed um in addition to being our own um uh food as human for for humans but yes also um they provide um critical nitrogen sources so um, as cover crops when they're planted next to um, other plants whether it's in farming or you know right outside in your garden or 
whatever, um, they can provide nitrogen sources um, and be um, a, a natural source of um, growth to help the plants around you and, and really fertilize that soil, um, which in turn helps our air and helps humans to breathe. They're so important. All right. Well, we're going to um, take a quick break, and when we come back, I would like for you to explain what some of the bean cultures were and, um, and where they were. So hold on for a minute, and we'll be right back. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, We at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Okay, we're back, and I'm speaking with Natalie Rachel Morris, whose soon-to-be-released book is Beans, A Global History. And we are talking about beans, the food that can feed an army, right? <laughs> and have fed an army, right? Um, I said w- that we would talk about bean cultures, and that that's you specify that in one of the chapters of your book. And um, so, what do you mean by bean cultures? Who were the people, I guess, who were eating the beans? Uh, so, I was mentioning a little bit earlier that I, you know, beans have uh, this sort of. Um, power that I think that, and this is why, what inspired me to write the book too, that I think that they're attached to so many different things. And uh, our cultures are one of them. Um, I think that so many cultures around the world have been able to um, have a link to beans and legumes and, uh, you know, broadly. And so I open up the chapter with with bean cultures by talking uh, just sort of in a spitfire way about how uh, beans and, and um, uh, beans have been able to um, connect themselves to various cultures around the world. And um, for example, right there, right off the bat, I'm talking about how um, you know um, beans themselves are used as um, o- you know oil, uh, different oils within. Um, the um you know for lighting and that kind of thing but and and those were in early times but um the the Scythians of the ninth century um uh in Asia were um relying on um 
beans for their um, to give to their cattle for nourishment. Um, so many, so many connections back to beans throughout really all of history and even now. So uh, that's one of the things that I just feel is so important. <laughs> right. Um, and, and then as, you know, as time progressed, um, it's, it's interesting that there were certain, I guess I would say bean meccas, right? Peru, for instance, and, and, um, and Africa. Um, tell us, tell us about Peru and the beans that were growing there. Um, are you referring to the 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 limo beans? I I guess I would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the. The beans that were grown in Peru is kind of a neat story. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily a nice story. It was um, about colonialism, but yeah. um, in its own way. But um, the the bean story that came out of Peru, um, well, there's a couple throughout the whole book, but the one that's specifically in the Bean Cultures book, um, um, Peru is often known, you know, for the potato, right? Right. But... Um, it has a connection to the bean in the way that uh, the Spain, you know, um, the regarding the Spain um, Reconquista regime in fifteen twenty five, Francisco Pizarro um, attempted to conquer Peru, and he founded um, Ciudad de los Reyes and uh, established roots for himself there. And um, he wanted to basically um, defend himself um, um, within this city against the native peoples. Um, the Incan people um, were really quite still recovering from another recent attempt and um, attacked Pizarro. Unfortunately, they were defeated. Um, but the city was renamed later um, uh, Lima, after the being native to that area and one that um, I would think most people here in America um, are familiar with. Um, uh, the name actually refers to Limac, and um, please forgive my, my Spanish because I'm not uh, versed in Spanish, but um, the name means speaker. Keeper. Hmm. Speaker. Speaker, oh, speaker, right? Oh, I'm, speaker. I read that. Yes, speaker. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, um, there are. I mean, you have a lot of stories. Um, some of them are very humorous too, um, about some of the beans and and what made it and what didn't make it and what was favored. And um, certainly in Roman times, you mentioned fava beans were some of the first, and in, in Roman times, particularly, they're very favored throughout the Roman Empire. But there was a little problem with the lentils. What was that all about? Uh, the lentils. Um, <laughs> the, Roman, the Romans. The so, Romans weren't well, too fond of the lentils. Right? They are not. No, Roman uh, Romans. You know, they had a favoring for for favas, but for whatever reason, uh, Romans did not appreciate lentils in fact they quite despised them and looked at them as more of um uh a use for um 
they cast them aside and thought, well, we can better use these for um, materials, but it was less of a, a, a functional purpose and more of a castaway. Huh. And so um, Romans um, decided to, the, the fun fact in the part of the book where I'm talking about this is that Romans used them as a packaging filler during the shipment of the famous Vatican obelisk. So um, it was kind of a, a, a way to just push lentils aside. Um, the other fun fact in that piece is that um, the one of the first known cookbooks was written um, out of Rome and by Apicius, um, and he did put in, he snuck in some lentil recipes. So um, I don't, it, I would be curious to kind of go back in time and interview him and say, you know, why did you, why did you sneak these in and, and uh, <laughs> what made right. you want to get that in there and, and uh, risk your reputation? Right. Uh, they were um, in, uh, that was in the fourth century, supposedly. He wrote that around the fourth century, but I think a lot of it was completed and written later. So it's hard to know when that recipe actually first made it into the book. Um, it mm -hmm. might have been later, but I thought that was very interesting as well, since it was not a favored um, legume. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, then I was also interested in. Um, something that you brought up and um it was about the african well basically um africans and native americans this this method of growing the slave trade brought things and popularized them when they came to um north america in the, in the western world like um pigeon peas and cow peas and and peanuts uh, but they act but the peanuts actually the ground nuts um had actually been around for a while um but somehow that and then they came back and they popularized them correct uh yeah i th um ground nuts this and... piece of the book was actually um done um using the research of um culinary historian Michael Twitty, who mm -hmm. I'm sure you are familiar with. Right. And if our reader or if our listeners are not, they should by all means uh check him out and his work. Um this piece of the um the book is is I think so important and uh relevant to um to today and kind of our social uh, circumstances um, happening. Um, so it was, it was important to me to, to be able to write about some of this stuff, um, particularly reflective of Michael Twitty. But um, the, um, the portion of the book that you're talking about was the British colonization of some parts of, of Africa and um, particularly in reference to ground nut stew and um, kind of the back and forth um, um, changes that occurred with that dish because of um, because of what was happening. So the um, the British colonists long for flavors of home um, and particularly Indian curry, which was obviously a dish that 
um, was not native to Britain, um, or the flavors of it weren't, but the reason they were, you know, craving it was because of even more <laughs> colonization and, and further back regarding that. But they were, they were really, um, craving that. And so they wanted to replicate it there in Africa. And, um, they used the local groundnut or today it's made with peanut butter. Um, and they used palm oil, smoked fish and goat meat to make this stew. And now, um, because it became so ingrained in Ghana that, uh, Ghanaians now really, um, make it quite often. And it's sort of just, um, taken on different, um, while those are the core ingredients, it's also obviously traveled to America and people make it here. And like foods do, they, it's, it, it has changed in different ways, but it still has that core element of those, um, those foods using that um, legume-based peanut butter. So it has this really neat in-depth story um, from West Africa. Right, right. Well, then we move up to um, more modern times, and beans just sort of made it around the world. And let us not forget the soybean, right, which is, mm-hmm. has been sustenance for so many, um, you know, of the Asian cultures for so long. Um, the Colombian exchange and, and trading around the world introduced all the different types of, of beans. What were some? What were some of the most popular that kind of I guess we could say took off, if you will. Do you mind repeating the the question that you just asked? Oh, what 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 type of bean became one of the most popular in, I guess, throughout the world that really took off, or that were I don't know, and maybe in the Western world due to the trade exchange post Columbian times. Sure, um, I. One of the, the, this part, this particular part of the book, um, the Columbian Exchange, I'm particularly fascinated by overall because the Columbian Exchange, I think, has had so much influence on where we're at today with our own farming and agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, one of the beans that particularly, maybe I should actually say a group of beans, but um, I would go with, you know, New World beans as a broad answer to your question, which would be more defined by, um, at least today, um, kind of what we've narrowed down with to things like what we know as the white bean or the navy bean and um, the pinto bean and um, beans like that, which have really kind of took on the 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 go-to they're you know they're kind of our go-to bean but those beans really actually do have a a really great history in that they were they were beans that um were cultivated they were they were already being cultivated here by um you know the the native uh people and um we talk, you know, I talk a little bit about in the, about that in the book, and and I think that's a whole group of beans that are special to the Americas, um, particularly our, you know, our food culture because um, 
of just how much weight they carry in our um, in, in the dishes that ref- are reflective of all of all of the Americas and um, you know there's quite a few uh, vendors particularly um, Steve Sando Rancho Gordo I know he's mm-hmm. he's uh, back to your um, your um, hoarding or, or whatever we want to label it as during the COVID, <laughs> but he's, uh, he's particularly, uh, seen a lot of, uh, increase in business, but he specializes in new world beans and, um, has a lot of information about them. Right. Right. Um, and his beans are, are terrific. If, um, you can go to Rancho Gordo and, and order them on, from mail order and they're, they are very good. Um, there, there. In modern times, there were different groups that you and you mentioned. They're the bean eaters, or they were labeled bean eaters, and and um, and I think many of us are you know familiar with that. The Mexicans and the Tuscans and and the Boston and Native Americans. The Bostonites would might you know not particularly want to be known as that so, any, so much anymore. But um, the, what. What can you tell us about these cultures that became known as bean eaters? Um, what types of beans were they use, eating and how? Sure. I really love this particular piece because um, I know that in some ways this has kind of also become, you know, it's not such a nice thing to call somebody that anymore. But in <laughs> right. some ways, too, I think that um, it's also tied to this Thing we're calling food culture right you know right. um you know i start with africa because i think it's probably the least um told story but um again it's um referencing a lot of michael twitty's work in the senegambian um parts of africa but he uh um you know talks a lot about how um there are many beans that are really grown there that we use um, that we don't think or know that really came from that area. And uh, the one particular part of the book that I was really happy to be able to kind of put out there as a fun fact was the, you know, ce- celebratory dish that we make uh, each year at the New Year um, that we know as Hop and John um, was actually a dish that the... Um, slaves who were brought over it, it that was actually a dish that they um that that was their dish and we now make that dish every year but have taken it and um of course recreated it and um americanized it westernized it but it's their dish and that gives it the soul that i think that really um like there's the that's the story there that's the really um um beautiful part of it and then in you know going to mexico um you know particularly on on my side of the country i you know there's so many dishes that we we eat a lot um that we don't even look at the beans that are on the plate anymore. They're just sort of there and hanging out and <laughs> they're just kind of tucked into it. Like they're tucked in and, and we don't even look at there, but they, if they were gone, we would notice. Right. And yeah, I, I just feel like um, they're so integral. 
And same thing with the Italians. Um, you know, Carol Cunahan does a lot of really great research with um, with the rat, or she she did a lot of really great research with um, particularly Tuscany and um, how um, integral the the bean is there, but really across Italy, um, so much so that they call themselves the Mangio Fagioli. So. Yeah, it's 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 interesting um, that only some of the many great stories that are are in this book and and interesting little tales here and there that come out and uh, and of course um, the you're in the part of the country that you know that is you know, eats so many beans as you mentioned um, and now in modern times there's this whole thing about people are rediscovering. Um, pulses, legumes, beans—you know the whole that whole family—and and other uses for the liquid that comes from them. You know, in this era of um, uh, lactose-free and, and diets, and and um, I even had when I've had ice cream made with the water from uh, chickpeas and, and different beans. That whole culture um, called aquafaba. You wrote about that. What, what? That's is that that's relatively recent, correct? Yeah, yeah, very recent. Um, and I'm so happy for it. I'm not a vegan. Um, I do eat fairly vegetarian, but I think that it's wonderful that we're not necessarily turning to um, thinking about. I mean, I know there is this piece of this as well but we're not necessarily having to turn to fake meat or thinking about meat as you know an alternative but right. we're thinking about u- utilizing plants in order to make our dishes and i think that that's a really neat thing and um i love the idea of aquafaba in that way um i you know um we've gone for years and years about thinking about diets and various food trends. And in that process, beans are often eliminated because of something called a, uh, um, um, phytate. And, um, it's, uh, in my opinion, a really sad thing. Don't eliminate beans. Beans are so good for you, (laughs) but, um, uh, you know, using beans and particularly implementing and implementing them and their um, nutrition in different ways, I think is so genius. Right. Um, well, and like back to the Hopping John, um, just that innate combination that occurred of combining the rice with the beans and, and in fact, completing that amino acid cycle that had to be completed to make them as nutritious as they are. And it's yes, something yeah. that just happened, right? And and it's great. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I really have no awareness of how much people really know about the combination of a rice, uh, of rice with beans, and just how much more, uh, you know, beans are already nutritional powerhouses within themselves. But if you eat them with beans they become even more um, of a nutritional powerhouse. So um, I think that, um, you know, when they're paired together, our our ancestors knew that, you know, they they had this um, instinct for these things already, I think. And um, I think returning to that kind of sort of 
if I can use the word sort of guttural <laughs> instinct, um, I think is a really neat um, uh, idea to go with and just sort of sitting down and thinking about, okay, well, my you know ancestors ate this way. It's probably a really good thing. Let me, re- let me do a little research. Let me think about this scientifically and how it's working yeah. and then do that. Well, one thing that I wanted to be, was we run out of time, I did want to bring up um, a use of beans that a lot of people um, maybe aren't that familiar with, and it's not part of our um, the North American culture, uh, certainly in Asia and Japan and China, using the cooked beans um, and even Mexico um, as a paste, you know, cooking them down and using them as a paste and sweetened then and using it as a filling. And in your neck of the woods in the Southwest, um, particularly you, well, what I wanted to mention, bring this up to mention is that at the end of the book, you, you have several really fine recipes included in the book. And and I thought that was a nice treat to anyone who's reading about history and getting hungry, reading about all these beans. And then, but the, um, the cooked and sweetened and mashed mashed up beans and used as a filling. Think of the you know the um, celebratory cakes, the bean cakes, the bean paste cakes from you know Japan and and uh, other Asian cultures. I mean, and then uh, Mexico as well. Um, can you tell us about one of the recipes? You don't have to go through the recipe because we don't really have time. But just explain um, about the um, what is it the uh, tepary bean pie. Yes, I can. Um, so my, so it was, it was inspired by the pie that is traditionally made by the nation of Islam, who I write about in the book. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I'll let, uh, the listeners, um, get a copy of the book and read more about that. But, right. <laughs> um, it is a pie that was invented, um, in order to, um, have a little bit of access to dessert, um, but eat beans as well. Um, beans, white beans particularly were, um, one of the foods that are approved by the nation of Islam to eat. And, um, so I needed a, a dessert recipe in this book. And I, I talked to a friend of mine who is an excellent baker. All the recipes in the book, by the way, are from uh, friends of mine and local chefs. So I want to give a shout out to all of them right now who I know are doing um, their very best given our current situation in the world. Right. Um, she is um, a local chef here in Phoenix. And she is... Uh, just she makes these creations that are just wonderful and so she and I talked about it and she said why don't I make you that bean pie but with the tepary bean which is a native bean uh, to uh, Arizona and um, our climate it it does amazing here it grows here it loves the heat and it comes in all sorts of varieties and she picked the white tepary bean to make this pie and uh she uh, brought it over to me as an example, and um, she had given it her own little twist in order to um, kind of adapt it for this book. And I cannot tell you, I felt 
enjoyment. I felt healthy. I felt <laughs> everything that you want to eat when you eat um, a pie, but also um, something that you feel when a friend brings you their own cooked meal. And um, this this recipe, I hope everyone enjoys making it. Um, she suggests having it with a little kind of a sweetened um, fruit syrup and maybe a little whipped cream on the side, which is also very similar um, with the cream that the Nation of Islam does. But um, it's, it's just a wonderful pie. She um, did a great job developing it, and I, I really hope everyone really enjoys e- uh, eating that. Well, it it read beautifully, and um, indeed, I, I, we have to give people a reason to buy the book to read about all these other stories and the bean lore. Oh, there are some fun stories on the bean lore and um, the different cuisines, and um, and you mentioned diets. It's just for such a little book. For those of you who aren't familiar with the edible series, um, there are a series of books um, that are called um, the edible series, and it's all the global history of. And we've had many of the uh, the authors on the show. And it's a small format book, but it is just packed with history and information and, and good things, all good things. And I can't wait. It comes out. When is it being released? It is released April 13th, but okay. you can pre-order. So um, I suggest that uh, you support the um publishers directly um it is available on amazon but you can support the publishers directly um the link is on my instagram which is at natalie rachel morris um or i'm search i'm certain you can find it just by searching reaction books or um, university of chicago press um and it's just twenty dollars it's a really easy summer read um yeah yeah. and fun pictures great pictures as well yeah thank you yeah. Um, so again, the it's called Beans: A Global History, and my guest has been Natalie Rachel Morris. And Natalie, thank you so much for it's difficult times in our world right now, but also our, the recording has been a little you know more difficult than our actual you know studio sitting in the studio. But great job and good information, and I hope we've given our listeners a lot to think about. Thanks for listening to all of you, and I hope that you all stay safe and stay healthy during these times. And again, this has been another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.